We will finish this section on Hebrews today, and then perhaps, I'm not sure, perhaps take a break. Maybe we'll wait till verse 16, but soon we'll take a break and do some standalone sermons. But this morning, we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. There was one more uh, sheet of notes left, just one. It used to be there. I'm not sure if it's there anymore. Let me pray, and then we'll look at verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews chapter 4. Lord, we continue to exalt you and to worship you as we come now to your word, which is living and active. Lord, we pray that you would use it in a powerful way to convict us, to cleanse us, to encourage us and to build us up, to rest in you, Lord. We give you the praise for Christ's sake. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Let me start in verse 11 to get the the context. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For... The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit and of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Do you have any driftwood at home? Are you a collector of driftwood? There is a similarity between Washington, Western Washington, and Florida. And it's driftwood. If you're in Florida and you're near the coast, especially if you're near a mangrove swamp that's near the coast or if you're in the St. John's or Indian or Banana River in Florida, there's a driftwood everywhere. If you're around the sound area, there's all kinds of driftwood. We used to walk down a beach when my kids were super young, and they would collect all kinds of driftwood, all kinds of branches, and it had to come home with us. In fact, even here, though not driftwood here, you name it, pine cones, branches, they would all stuff it into my bag. But especially driftwood. Now, driftwood can be a little bit pretty. You know, you can use it for a lot of decorations. But when I was a young man in Florida, we collected driftwood for one purpose. What was that purpose? Bonfire. (laughs) So, though there can be some advantages for for drifting, driftwood, it can be used for decorations, but often it's used for a bonfire. It's used for destruction. That is, there is a type of drifting which is not good. If you had a choice between a piece of driftwood or a piece of wood that was part of a sailboat, which would you rather be? Which should you be? Should you be part of a wooden, uh, you know, gloriously uh, glossy sailboat that's sailing over the seas, or a piece of driftwood that eventually winds up on a beach and is gathered and burned? Which should you be? You would want to be part of that wood, that boat that's going forward through the ocean. Now this morning, in our passage, when we look at Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, but especially 12, not that we misquote it, but the context of verse 12 and 13 is part of a warning of not to drift away, of not to have hardened hearts. That's why verse 13 ends with, and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It is not good for a Christian 
to drift away from Christ. We can profess to know Christ, and then as time goes by, if we begin to drift away from Christ and drift away from the gospel, then it will display that though we profess Christ, we never possessed Christ. And this whole passage, really a lot of the book of Hebrews, but this whole passage in front of us, chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13, deals with drifting away from Christ is an issue of the heart. Deal with your heart. And we can see that even in our passage in Hebrews 4.12, it deals with the heart, the very last word in, in verse 12. And even verse 13 says we are open and laid bare before him and we can't hide from him. Verse 7 says of chapter 4, don't harden your hearts. Chapter 3, verse 19 says they cannot enter because of unbelief. And of course, chapter 3, verses 7, all the way to verse 11, and even verse 12 deals with protect your heart and guard your heart. And so we've said that drifting away from Christ is a heart issue, and so we need to deal with the heart. And we've given seven heart treatments, and we'll go over those to the end of the sermon. You can see it on the back if you have the notes, but we'll go over it toward the end of the sermon. For right now, I want us to focus on this seventh treatment to help us to not drift away from Christ. And again, the Bible says, he that began a good work in you, he'll perfect it until that day. God will be sure that those who are true believers will be saved. He will save them by his grace forever and forever. But that is worked out practically by you and I progressing in the faith. And to help our hearts, we have to take this heart treatment. The seventh one we said last week is take care of your heart by what? By resting. Not sleeping, but resting in Christ. And rest is another way that we can describe trust or refuge. You trust Christ. You take refuge in the Lord. You rest in Him. And we talked about first last week that this means we're alarmed. We want to be sure that when we come to the end of our life that we have faith. And you see that in chapter 4, verse 1. We don't want to come short of not resting in the Lord, of resting in Jesus Christ. We want to fight the fight of faith from beginning to end and end well. Also, last week, then we looked at a second way to understand this rest. And that is you work, you work extremely hard to rest. Not a, a system of self-works and self-glorification where you seek to merit your way into heaven, but really it's this, you work hard to deny yourself, you work hard to glory in Christ, you work hard to be sure that you understand and are taking refuge in the work of Christ and not in your own work. We work hard to rest in Jesus. There is a temptation to rest for me. I, I was a missionary. I did this and this and this and this and this. And so I can rest in those things. However, that moment before we die, if we have rested in all those things, and not in Christ, then probably we'll feel a lot of anxiety. Because we know that all these different things, uh, works that we've done, they don't really secure our heart or, or give us peace. Only resting in Jesus Christ does. Now, that was the exhortation. This morning, we're going to look at the motivation. That is, the, the motivation to work hard, to rest only in Christ, to take Christ only as our refuge. As believers, and then every day after we're believers, even if we move a mountain by our faith, we don't trust and the fact that we moved a mountain, we trust in Christ. And so this morning, the motivation is going to be given. The motivation to rest, to work hard, to extremely rest in Christ is this. And you see it in verses 12 and 13. First, we're going to see that it's the word of God is Lord. 
The word of God is Lord, and then God is Lord. The word of God is Lord, that's verse 12. And then God himself is Lord. Often in scripture, characteristics of God's lordship, of him being Yahweh, will be authority, power, and presence. Authority, power, and presence. And you see those basically and generally in in this passage. You can note that even in verse 13, the way to the ends with whom we have to do is presenting God and Christ as Lord, as King. It is the Word of God which is Lord. The Word of God is Lord, and God who wrote the Word is Lord. And these verses are, are given as motivation for us to be sure we're resting in Christ. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 begins with four. It's giving the motivational grounds for us to work extremely hard. And though this verse is a great verse on the doctrine of the war of the word, I've used it all the time. I've prayed through it before I preach, uh, debating with different people, maybe, uh, maybe uh, teaching in seminary, other places here in church. I've used Hebrews 4.12, to talk about the doctrine of the, of the word, and that is good and that is right. But in context, specifically, it's given motivational grounds of why you should take refuge in Christ, of why you should work hard to rest in him. Why? Because it is the word of God which is truly Lord. So first, let's look at verse 12. And I should say, uh, by the way, there are some theologians, especially the early church, in verse 12, when it says the word of God, they interpreted that not as the written word, but as Christ, as Jesus. Well, the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word, and the the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. That is not this context. The context here is actually the written word of God. You can see itself in in chapter 4 and 3 and chapter 2 and chapter 1 how many times the Old Testament is quoted. Psalms and Isaiah over and over again are quoted. Further, even here in chapter 4, when it talks about the word, look at verse 2, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And context then, when it says word, it's not specifically Jesus, but it is the written word of God. And to encourage you, and John talked about this, uh, I think a few weeks ago, here in context, when the Old Testament is quoted, what Bible would they be using? They weren't using the original autographs. They were using the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And even in that context, the Holy Spirit through the book of Hebrews, referring to the word of God that was just spoken, is saying, for the word of God is this way. That is, even copies of the word, as they are true copies of that original autograph, they are the word of God. So then let's get into verse 12. And we're saying since the word is Lord, the word of God is your Lord, and it's the Lord of anybody that's ever been born, whether or not they ascribe lordship or authority to their written word of God, it is authoritative for every creature. Therefore, there are a number of descriptions and elements, and you can see these if you have your notes in front of you, that will bring out verse 12 for us. And the first one is, it is relevant. It is relevant. The word of God is Lord in the sense that it is relevant. Well, what does that mean? The word of God is our Lord in the sense that it is relevant, meaning that If you have somebody or something that is over you in authority, absolutely, in a very true sense, it is very relevant. 
because it has absolute authority over you. So when I say it is relevant, I don't mean it's hip or it's cool, but the word of God speaks authoritatively to us right now, today. And even here in verse 12, we see this with the word living. And in the Greek text, it comes even before the word of God. It is being underscored and highlighted and made emphatic, this word living. The word of God is living. And in what sense? And it's not talking about your, your, your leather is alive. It's not talking about the, the, the paper or the ink on the page. It's not talking about your chapter divisions. It's not even talking about the, the margin. It's talking about what is actually written, the words and the sentences and the clauses as they come together forming these truth statements. It's these that, that are alive. Well, in what way? It's not simply an ancient book. The Bible is not simply an ancient book filled with ancient words that came from Hebrew and Greek. It's not simply an ancient book that has old characters in it that can be at times encouraging, but rather, much more than that, it is cross-cultural and transgenerational. That is the Word of God, though at times we may have to study some things to become more clear in our heads for what it means. It speaks to all cultures, and it speaks to people 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 500 years ago, and even today. It is transgenerational. It is cross-cultural. I can be in the mountains of Pemplinir in India, I can be in Krasnoyarsk, Russia, I can be in Myanmar, I can be in South Central LA and quote the Bible and explain it, and people can get upset because they understand the truth of what it means, or they can be really encouraged because of the truth of what it means. In that sense, it is alive. And it speaks. But further, it itself is the word of life. You can see this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16. It is the word of life, meaning that it can, by the power and the grace of God, it can give life. Again, not the piece of, of leather, but the truth, these declarations that God has made here in his word. Philippians chapter 2 verse 16 says, holding fast the word of light, the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. It is the word of life. That means it has life and, and it is in itself giving life. Even if we were to go past the book of Hebrews and go to 1 Peter chapter 1, listen to verse 23. For you have been born again, regenerated, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living, enduring word of God. And verse 25 says, and this is the word which was preached to you. It is truth as it's formed in these sentences and clauses and phrases and declared clearly and accurately that the Holy Spirit uses to cause the dead to come to life. It regenerates people. It does wondrous supernatural miracles by giving supernatural life. This is what even in the book of James it says in James chapter 1 verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. For somebody to be born again, God has declared a means of that, is that the Holy Spirit will take the word that is given to them. Either they read it or they hear it or it's preached to them. Somehow they see it. God quickens them gives them understanding by his spirit, enlightens them, and then causes them to be regenerated. And he does that by giving them life through the life-giving word. Even for us believers, Psalm 119, 
105, thy word is a lamp unto my path and a light to my feet. Right? The word of God gives us light in the sense that as you're running or are walking throughout life, you know the right way to choose and the right way normally to go. You know to go left or right because it's clear. God's word has made morality very clear for us. So when I was a young boy, I was at Marsh Park in Orlando, Florida, and it was late at night. And we decided, we were all dirty. We had played King of the Hill, these three big, huge dirt hills. It was so much fun. We had a great time. But I was dirty from head to toe. I was just covered with dirt. And so my dad and others said, okay, let's go jump in the water, the, the creek. Let's go jump in the water, boys. And so we all started running. And ow, ow, ow. I, I tripped and fell. And ow. And there was all this blood coming down from my foot. Oh, I stubbed my toe again. My brother was going to make fun of me. Because I was always stubbing my toe. And then my dad came over, let me see, son. And he signs a light on my on my foot. And a root had gone uh, up in between my big toe and my small toe. It had gone all the way into the foot. And then it was poking out on top like this. But it hadn't broken all the foot. The, the skin was there, still there on top. You know, And I was like, I'm going to die. <laughs> Why did I do that for? I had no idea where I was going. It was so dark. I was running barefoot, and there were roots and branches sticking up. I'm surprised I didn't get it into my throat. I, I, I didn't know where to go. Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a light into my path and a light into my feet. If I had a flashlight, like other people had had a flashlight, I wouldn't have made that mistake. But God's word is of such a nature that it tells us this is right and this is wrong. In that sense, it gives light, life also in that way. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. That's the Hebrew word nephesh. And that just means life. It revives our life. The statutes of the word are trustworthy, making wise the simple. God's word gives us wisdom Again, Psalm 119, verse 105, wisdom to live in a way that is upright and safe for him. That is that God's word, it is living in a sense it speaks to us today, but it is also a source of life for us. In fact, Deuteronomy 32, I think it's verse 47, says it's not an idle word, talking about the word of God. It's not an idle word. It is your very life. It is your very life. So to rest in him then, in context, what God is saying to these Hebrew men and women that had professed Christ is don't be like Israel when they were delivered and redeemed by God and they're wandering around in the wilderness and God says, take the promised land, take the promised land. Trust me, I will defeat all your enemies. Take it, I promise I will be with you. And they're saying, no, I would rather have leeks and, and onions and, and be a slave. I'd rather be a slave and eat food, good food, rather than trust the Lord. Because I know in Egypt, though it might be difficult, I have life. When actually their true life, their true rest would be in the promised land if they will by faith take it. And here, in a similar way, verse 12 is saying, life comes from the promises and the plans and the precepts of the written word of God. So what do we do then? We rest in him by reading it, by relishing it, and running in it. Read it, relish it, run in it. Why do I say run in it? Well, Psalm 119 and the bailiff section at the very end, it says, Lord, enlarge my heart that I might run in it, that I might run in your commandment. That's Psalm 119. Read it, relish it, run in it. In that sense, it is relevant. Because the king, our king, the, the king of the universe, the one that made all things, going back to Hebrews 1, 
He's written a word, therefore it is relevant. Or another way to say that is it speaks today because it's live. It's alive and it gives life. Secondly, it is also effective. It's also effective. Your version might say active. Some versions might say effective. It's related to our word for energy. It will do what it's designed to do. It will do what it's designed to do. And it will always bring forth fruit. It works. It's powerful. It's not null and void. Even when you share the Bible, maybe with a relative, maybe with a stranger, and they hear it and they reject it, maybe, was that a fruitless conversation? No. Listen to Second Corinthians. And though it may be, in one sense, difficult to hear, listen to Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests to us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So when Moses and Joshua and Caleb said, the promised land, yes, there are some giants in it, but God is with us. We can believe God. By faith, we can conquer the giants and we can have the whole promised land. God is with us. God, it's true. Let's do it. At least two million people, that is the first generation of Israelites, when they heard the truth, they hardened their hearts to it. Did that mean that God's word was not effective? It was effective. It was effective in hardening their hearts. But it secured Joshua and Caleb. God's word does God's work, and it will come back to him having fulfilled its purpose. The book of Isaiah, of course, says this, chapter 55, verse 11. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So then, in that sense, especially in the book of Hebrews, where over and over again it has said, don't harden your heart, don't harden your heart, don't harden your heart. It's not that somehow God's going to be pushed back into a corner. That per- Tom hardened his heart. This person hardened their heart. And God is pushed back in a corner and, and is, oh, I lost. If you or someone hardens their heart against God, and it's not as though that somehow God was defeated by you. But in the purpose and plan of God... It's the idea that God's going to judge you by his word. So in that sense then, when it says it's effective, don't be like a pharaoh and when you hear God's word, say no, 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 no. Then your heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder. Instead, Lord, make my heart soft. Lord, make my heart soft so that I'll say yes. Yes, Lord. Lord, I have unbelief. Help me to believe. But God's word is effective. Consider Joshua. Yes, there are some people that will harden their hearts and God's word will be effective and faithful and dealing with them. But also God's word, his plans, his promises, his precepts are without fail. Joshua chapter 21 verse 45. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. There could be many other places, right, which we could talk about the effectiveness of the word. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes through hearing, hearing the word of Christ. It is powerfully effective. Second Timothy three sixteen, and all scripture is God breathed and useful or profitable for, profitable for instruction, for correcting in righteousness, for training for for repentance. God's word is powerful and will always accomplish 
what God has meant it to do. I'm thinking of Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 23. If I can turn the page. Chapter 23, verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares Yahweh, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? This is God's word. Powerfully effective like fire and like a hammer that can break a hardened heart but the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Here, when it's talking about then in Hebrews 4.12 being effective, it's effective and it's active for God's purposes. Truly, with God's word, we can say out of every product ever in the whole universe, God's word truly is safe and effective. That's what God's word is. And that's what the idea here in Hebrews 4.12. Effective or active in terms of whatever God has designed for his word to do, it will be done. It will be. And few prophecies are left to be fulfilled. Those in the book of Revelation and then will be done. So then, knowing that then, what do we do? We work hard to rest in Christ. So, so that we don't drift away, we don't place our hope in works that we've done or are doing or, or or we think we should do. Rather, we take our refuge in Jesus, knowing that God's going to accomplish His purposes. If it deals with you and I having to overcome giants in the land, if suddenly there's giants in the land and God says that we can take them, would that be true? Yes, it would be true. We can believe God at His word. So then what do we do? We read it, we relish it, and we run in it. Lord, enlarge in my heart that I might run in your commandments. It's also penetrating. It's a relevant word. It's an effective word. It's also a penetrating word. Look at how it's described in verse 12. Sharper than a two-edged sword, and the two-edged sword is the Roman gladius, it's the short sword or the Greek short sword that they would use in close hand-to-hand kind of combat. It's sharper than even a two-edged sword and piercing as far as the soul and the spirit being divided in the joints and the marrow. It's really able to, to, to penetrate and cut. You can say it really nails you. Have you ever heard a sermon or even read the you've read the word and oh man, that just nails me. I'm convicted. Have you ever read the word and been like, oh, that just just sliced me up in terms of conviction? There are times throughout the whole world when I've preached, not because of my preaching, because of the text. I'm sure this has happened. This happens all the time to many preachers. You can preach and somebody will come up and say, Tom, you said this, this, and this from the Bible, and has somebody, I don't appreciate you sharing with the congregation about my sin problem. And I'd be like, what? Here at Pilgrim, at Grace Community Church, at Russo Church, different places in the world, in Florida, have people come up, how'd you know this was going on in my life? I had no idea. I didn't design the sermon, especially... For you. <laughs> you know, I did, but I didn't. It wasn't for you. I'm just trying to exposit the, the text. But the nature of the word, not necessarily the sermon, but the nature of the word of God is that it's a, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's more deadly than a deadly instrument of cutting and dicing in war. It's it's better at doing its job at dividing and piercing and penetrating than a deadly sword. That's how it's being described. A hard heart can be cut in two then by the word of God so much so that it can go into the deepest part of a man or a woman. It can go into the most deepest part of your inner being. 
That's why it says here, as to the division of the soul and spirit, as to both joints and marrow, this text is not trying to give a anthropological study on the nature of the different compositional elements of mankind. It's not trying to say necessarily that the soul and the spirit are absolutely distinct. That's not the idea here in this text. There are times in the book of Acts and other places where soul here at Suke can be used for a person, or it can be used for their thinking, or it can be used for a life. Soul. Here, Numa, referring to a person, it can be used throughout Acts, throughout the, the, the Gospels, it can be used for an individual person, it can be used for his life, it can be used for thinking. Same as soul. The only difference between soul and spirit, basically, and even this you can't stretch too far, would be that the soul is more of a an earthly person, not in a bad sense, but in a sense of more tied to the earth or looking at a person from an earthen perspective, not in a bad sense, a, a creature. Whereas spirit can be looked at being more from the eternal or heavenal uh, heavenly perspective. But even there, you wouldn't want to press that too much because there is so much overlap. And it's hard for us to discern soul of spirit, is there that big of a difference? No, not, not really. There's so much overlap. And so here when it says that parasine and even going to dividing the soul and spirit, it's the idea of dividing that which is basically impossible to divide. That's the idea of the joints and marrows. You know, to, to, to divide these compositional bodily elements that are all intertwined together, whether it's material or immaterial, you really can't do it, but God's Word can do it. God's Word is that powerful and that penetrating. It's not a sermon. It's not words of man that can do that, but it's the very power of God that can do that. Through his word. In other words, there is nobody that is too far gone. We all have people in our life, friends or family or foes, that have deserted Christ and walked away from Christ, or at least are being tempted to. And so this passage is saying, whatever sin they have or even you have, that's deep down and the deepest part of your being, and nobody really knows about it, God knows about it, and God is able to do a great work through his word in that heart. God can do it. God is the surgeon. The best surgeon there is. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. We could maybe, I don't say this with disrespect, but to illustrate what this passage is saying, Perhaps we wouldn't today say a two-edged sword. We could say God's word is alive and active and sharper than a black lightsaber. God's word is more devastating than Excalibur. God's word is more penetrating than Orcharist and Sting put together. So you can take whatever kind of famous swords from one ever kind of legends and stories we have, fantasy or sci-fi, God's word is more devastating and more able and more penetrating. And what hard-hearted people need and what we need, even in our temptation, is to read the word, relish the word, then by God's grace to run in the word. It is also judge. It is also judge. Now, the Greek text doesn't have the word able to, but it's okay. Maybe I would say put that in in italics. It's an adjective. And the word, this word of God, is judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's not just able to judge, in other words. Even, even more precise... It's not just able to do that. By its nature, God's word is a judge. In fact, this word here for judge is where we get our word critic from. 
The word judge in verse 12, the Greek word is where we get our, it goes to the Latin, which goes to the English, and we say critic or criticize. We don't stand, as it were, we can pretend that we do that, or pagan man, or liberal theologians can, and we can all do this at times to our shame and sin, but we don't stand above God's word and look down at God's word and seek to scrutinize it in the sense of criticizing it and judging it. Is it accurate or is it or is it wrong? Is it true? Is it right? Is God really going to do what he says? But rather, God's word is judging us, exposing us, revealing what's in our hearts. And that's how it's being used here with these believers that are in Hebrews chapter 4. So when the Israelites heard the word, today don't harden your hearts, and when David said, don't harden your hearts when the Hebrew hears, believers are hearing this word. It's being read, it's being preached to them. Don't harden your hearts. That even now to some of you that are sitting here it is exposing your sinfulness. Are you wanting to harden your hearts against Christ and say, no, no, I'm not ready yet to be saved. No, no, I don't want to give up this sin. That's a hard heart. And you're not succeeding when I, I'm not succeeding when when I shake my fist at God and say no I'm I'm losing and that itself is a, a process of judgment of God upon me upon you upon any of us that stand opposed to God's word and look at what it says in verse 12 the thoughts and intentions of the heart it's the idea of that the deepest place of your thinking, when you have an idea, I could do this. I could do this. I could be a computer programmer. Okay, without itself, that's not sin. But maybe that gets full-blown into an intention to where I could be a computer programmer, and design AI. And then one day I can rule the world! So it goes from this little tiny concept to this grandiose planet scheme that I have. God's word is able and is by its nature criticizing, judging those desires, emotions, thoughts, and plans as, is it to glorify me? Is it to help others? Are you loving me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? In this sense, then, God's word is our judge. A.T. Robinson said about this verse, The surgeon carries a bright light and powerful light for every dark crevice and a sharp knife for the removal of the pus revealed by the light. That's the nature of God's word. It it can hurt because it judges, because it exposes our, our sin, and it brings forth our ugliness, that remaining sin in our life. But then it brings cleansing and healing because the Bible says in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us. And that's healing, and that's forgiving, and that's nourishing. But first, it does bring the judgment. So we work extremely hard to rest in Christ because the Word is our Lord. It's relevant, it's effective, it's penetrating, but it's also our judge. Now, the verse 13 will be rather quick. There's not a lot here, but what is here is is very powerful. First, we said the word of God is Lord, but also God is Lord. Look at verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Just several things here to think about. First, God sees everyone. You can see that, right? There is no creature hidden from his sight. 
That's number one. God sees everyone. Number two, but all things are open. God sees everyone. There is no place where you can hide from God. There, there's no God-free zone. You know, you, you can have a gun-free zone, maybe a terrorist-free zone. Um, I was in Singapore, and they have a no-gum zone. You, you can't chew bubble gum there. Okay, it's true. There is no place on earth, where you, in the universe, where you can say, God's not here. This is a God. If God wasn't there, there'd be nothing there. It'd be, it'd be, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't exist. There's no such thing as a God-free zone. God is everywhere, so there's no place you can hide from God. You can't. Jonah found that out. Adam and Eve found that out. You can't hide from God. Second, God knows everything about everyone. And this word here in verse 13 is basically when it says open, it's but all things are naked and laid bare to the eyes of him. Open in a sense of completely exposed. So all, all of your thoughts that you have, whether they're really good or whether they're very, very, very bad, God knows. And more important than your parents are your children, are your spouse, are your friends, are their pastor, though you may not believe it, is, is God. God knows everything about you, how the, the worst that you can ever be, the, the worst thing that you've ever done, that you've hidden and you've covered it up and nobody knows about it. The most important person of the universe knows about it. You can't hide anything from him. I can't hide anything from God. God God knows me. And everything about me, every thought, God knows. But this verse goes on. Verse 13, it says, laid bare. I'm not trying to criticize the translators. I, I, I would never want to be a translator. Because how, how do you translate God's word? That, that's, that's difficult. Laid bare. Most of your versions, I think, say laid bare. Laid bare can seem very domesticated. Okay? My mother, when she was growing up, she grew up on a farm, she would take a chicken, take its head, swing it around, snap the neck. That's laid bare. It is. Or sometimes she would take a chicken, grab it, boom, take an axe, bang. She would stretch out that neck, chop it off. You're like, what in the world, Tom? You're going on with those crazy illustrations again. This word, laid bare, it's one word in the Greek, and it's the word trachea. It's the word trachea, throat. It's the idea of bending back. So it's the idea that, and it's perfect tense, meaning in the past and to this day, in one sense, our necks are stretched out and bent back because God knows every single sin and dirty, evil thought we've ever, ever done. God knows it all. He knows it all. And none of us can get into heaven without Christ. Not one of us. We, we stand condemned because God knows everything. That's what this word means, laid bare, is that you and I are absolutely, in one sense, utterly helpless before God under this sword of his word that is perfect and he has perfect knowledge of us. And his word says, by no means were God let the guilty go unpunished. So what hope is there for you to have salvation without Christ? Nothing. I have no hope. I have none at all to get to heaven except for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's my only hope. And here, verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because we've professed, and Jesus, hold fast to that. 
rest in him by holding fast. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Finally, as we look at verse 13, you'll note, and I've been saying this, so I don't have to explain it, but when it says, at the very end of verse 13, we have to do, we have to do, are you seeing that? We have to do. The we is there in the text, but have to do is logos. At the end of verse 13, which says, with whom we have to do, it's, To do is logos. In other words, verse 12 starts and says, For the word of God is living and active. And God's word is speaking to you. And then Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed for man to die once. And then we have words with God. Our God has words with us. This passage starts with that written word of God, and then it ends, as it were, in the very throne room with God, and we have a serious, perhaps final talk with God. Now, these verses, in one sense, they are more serious and somber than we give them room for Because these verses are encouraging you and encouraging me. We've made a profession of Christ. We've confessed that he's Jesus. Let's rest in him and hold on to him and not drifting away. Drifting away is a heart issue. How is your heart? Are you reading the word? Are you relishing the word? Are you running in the word? Are you resting in Christ? The truth of the matter is that Jesus will never desert you. Jesus will never drift away from you. It says in Hebrews 13.5 that the Lord will never forsake you or fail you. Jesus will never desert you. He won't drift away from you. He's with you always. Will you trust him today and tomorrow? By God's grace, we can do that. By God's grace, may we keep pressing forward as we rest in him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you that it's it's active. It's relevant. It's penetrating. Even, Lord, it exposes our sinfulness. And, Lord, we confess that we are uh, before you as we are, and you see everything about us, Lord. And even when we were helpless and hopeless and hostile, but God demonstrates his own love toward us while yet we were sinners. Christ died for us. And if you died for us, Lord, even when we were hostile and opposed to you, how much more now will you keep us reconciled by your life? Lord, take your word and convict and cleanse and use it in all of our lives today, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.